Now, if you notice, the uh, last couple of weeks, I've been sitting toward the back. And normally, I think the guest speaker or whoever speaking sits in front. But I decided to move into the back so that I'm not as close to the speakers. Uh, I love your worship team. I love the volume at which they play. But I wear hearing aids. And I'm constantly having to adjust them because I'm sitting so close. And then I have to turn off my Bluetooth so that if my phone were to ring, you don't hear it through my hearing aids, which is my Bluetooth. So uh, it's, life is all about adjustments, making adjustments. If you're single and you get married, you have to make adjustments. If you're married and you have kids, you have to make adjustments. When you retire, you have to make adjustments. And if you don't make those appropriate adjustments, you're going to have a real difficult time with life. So as you grow older, your hearing fades. Uh, they say when you grow older, they say your eyes dim. Sometime in May, I'm having cataract surgery. Because as you grow older and your cataracts get bigger on your lens, your, your sight grows dim. And I know exactly what they're talking about now. But also your hearing starts to go. So if your dad, if you're around, your dad's around 50, 60, maybe your mom too, and they start to lose their hearing, a lot of time men will not get hearing aids for vanity's sake. Now, I resisted for a little bit, but then at staff meetings, I couldn't hear the staff members across the room, and I didn't want them yelling. So there's two advantages of getting hearing aids as you grow old. One is you just hear better. When they're out, the world is really dull. Here's the second reason that you can convince that can help convince your dad, especially. They've done studies, and getting hearing aids sort of retards the development of dementia in people. Because dementia can develop because one portion of your brain is not being utilized fully. And if you're not listening, and men just stop listening, they don't they don't try to listen, right? Then that part of the brain ceases to function to its full capacity which can enhance the onset of dementia. So they learn a lot of things when you come on Sunday morning, some things you don't even want to know. We're going to begin part two of the father journey with a film clip. And I said that the, the movies that I showed at the front and I'll show a clip from, this is How to Train Your Dragon. I went to go see this, I said, with my grandkids. I didn't think I would like it. I loved it because it's a father movie. Here's the clip. Okay, but I hit a night fury. Oh, it's not like the last few times, Dad. I mean, I really actually hit it. You guys were busy, and I had a very clear shot. It went down. Get a search party out there before Stop! I... Just stop. Every time you step outside, disaster falls. Can you not see that I have bigger problems? Winter is almost here, and I have an entire village to feed. Yeah, between you and me, the village could do with a little less feeding, don't you think? This isn't a joke, Hiccup! Oh, why can't you follow the simplest orders? I, I can't stop myself. I see a dragon and I have to just kill it, you know? It's who I am, Dad. Oh, yeah. Many things, Hiccup. But a dragon killer is not one of them. Get back to the house. Make sure he gets there. I have his mess to clean up. Quite the performance. I've never seen anyone mess up that badly. That helped. Thank you. Thank you. I was trying. So. Ow! <laughs>
I really did hit one. Sure. He never listens. Well, it runs the and, and when he does, it's always with this disappointed scowl like someone skimped on the meat in his sandwich. Excuse me, barmaid. I'm afraid you brought me the wrong offspring. I ordered an extra-large boy with beefy arms, extra guts and glory on the side. This here, this is a talking fishbone. Now, you're thinking about this all wrong. It's not so much what you look like, it's what's inside that he can't stand. Thank you for summing that up. Look, the point is, stop trying so hard to be something you're not. I just want to be one of you guys. Unfortunately, that kind of represents some relationships that people have with their dads. In this case, it's the son, but it could also be the daughter. Sometimes we feel like we don't live up to their expectations, and they let us know that. And last week, I described some of the fathers that we may have. So last week, we looked at, we looked at the, uh, the, the importance of admitting the presence of a father wound, a father loss, or a father yearning. And then we closed with the idea of asking for assistance or praying. Now we're going to look at the next 11 steps this morning. All right. First, of, the third step, acquire the facts. Acquire the facts. And there's some nuances to the word facts. Two reasons to seek the truth. You should always want to seek the truth. First reason, truth will bring you peace. Truth will bring you peace. And sometimes we don't have peace in our lives because we have a lingering father issue. Philippians 4, 7 and 8 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The Bible says that we will dwell in peace if we dwell in the truth or that which is true, that which is right. Truth will eventually lead to peace. Sometimes at the front end of truth discovery, it's not very peaceful. But ultimately, truth will always lead to peace. That's one reason. Second reason to look for the truth and acquire the facts that are true. Truth will set you free. Truth will always set you free, even if it doesn't seem like that at the front end. John 8, 32 to, 31 to 32. I love these words of Jesus. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my dis disciples of mine, and you, will make, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. See, lies and misperceptions hold us in bondage. Only the truth can set us free. Something to always remember. The truth is what sets us free. You know, some people feel like they've done something so horrible and bad in their lives that there is no way God could ever forgive them. Is that you? Is there something you have done that you don't want to not only disclose to anyone, but you're ashamed that God knows? And so as a result, you spend the rest of your life in guilt and shame, in bondage. What will set you free? The truth. What's the truth? God loves you. God is a merciful God, and God wants to forgive you. That is truth, replete in the scriptures. And if you embrace that truth, it will set you free from the bondage 
of guilt and shame. And I've actually known people who are like this. I've talked to people over the course of my ministry, women who have undergone an abortion and haven't disclosed it to anybody. And they live in the bondage of shame and guilt. But the truth will, so that when they confess it, they realize the truth will set them free. They let people know, I underwent this and now I'm forgiven. I've counseled people who have, had, who have been abused within the family, outside of the family, sexually. And they hide it. But it needs to be brought to light. The truth of what transpired wasn't their fault. Because they think it's their fault. And once you disclose it, and once you comprehend the truth of what transpired, it will set you free. Is there something in your life that's holding you in bondage, holding you in captivity? Well, the truth can set you free. And only the truth will set you free. So when it comes to your relationship with your father, gather information. Now, here's the nuance. Sometimes people's truth is their perception of reality, but it's very true to them. Right. Pure truth is only found in the scriptures. And the way you gather inform- inform- information is by interviewing those who should know. So let's say you don't know a whole lot about your dad. Most of us don't. Now, when I started my journey, my dad had already passed away. So there was no way I can gather it from him. So gather information from the people who would know. Now, if your father's alive, gather it from him, from your father. Now, one of the things that I I tried to teach our church family is living a life of no regrets. So look at it. So I share some things that people have regrets over toward the end of life. See, I can share these things with you because I'm near the end of my life. So I can look back and say, these are the things I have regretted over time. And one of my greatest regrets is not really speaking with my dad when I had opportunities to do so, or even when I didn't have liberty to do so. I took him out one time to a restaurant in Pasadena. I still remember the name of the restaurant. It's not there anymore. It's called Samurai. I took him for a Japanese lunch. And the whole intent was to ask him questions and to share Jesus with him. That was the whole intent of that lunch. I prayed about it. I planned it. And it was weird that I I was taking my dad out to lunch to begin with. We sat down and I chickened out. Totally blew it. Started talking about football, things that I felt comfortable talking with him about. To this day, I regret the fact that I didn't have the nerve and the commitment to share Jesus with my dad. Because when he died, when he died, I didn't know if he knew Jesus. I have hope because he'd been attending church, but I have no assurance. Just I would have, I should have just at least asked him about his history, but I didn't. And that is a life regret for me that I never asked my dad anything beyond utilitarian purposes. Are you like that with your dad? If it continues till he, the day he dies, you will live with that regret. Live a life with no regrets, as best as you can. So I decided not to do this, make the same mistake with my father-in-law who didn't know Jesus. So um, I got to do things. I I had learned how to play cribbage so I could play cribbage with my father-in-law. It's a card game with a board and pegs and stuff. And uh, I did that solely to spend time with my father-in-law. Then he had a stroke and he came to live in our house for about three to four months. 
And I decided, okay, I'm taking this opportunity to talk to my father-in-law about stuff. Every year, by the way, I went to witness to him. And he knew every year, once a year, I was going to share Jesus with him. That he knew. I told him, I'm doing this every year, Dad. Called him Dad. And um, during the time he was convalescing at our house from a stroke, he would stay up late at night and sleep in, stay up late. And so I stayed up with him, and I began to ask him questions about his history. He absolutely talked my ear off. I heard things that I didn't really want to hear, all right? But he would share. Sometimes he'd go on for like an hour or two sharing about his life. And I knew, so I ended up knowing stuff about dad that the rest of the family knew nothing about, simply because I spent time and asked him questions. I look back now, and I wish I knew some more stuff about my dad, even simple things. Oh, by the way, my father-in-law came to Jesus eventually. Right? You can learn from your mother. Talk to your mom about dad. From immediate and extended family members, ask questions about your dad. From friends of the family. You know, it's not an inquisition. It's just like, hey, hey, tell me about my dad when you knew him back in the day and try to engage them in a conversation. Now, when I'm on my father journey, I interviewed my aunts, my uncles, my mom. Uh, I interviewed a couple of his friends, good friends, just to find out about my father. When I had that time with my uncle, he had one younger brother. I, I told uncle, hey, let's go have breakfast. I want to ask you some questions about something. So he went. We went to IHOP in Pasadena. We sat down. We ordered breakfast. It was in the morning. I said, hey, uncle, tell me about dad. From the moment he opened his mouth about my father to the time, well, I'll describe what happened next. He started crying. He just started crying. I mean, it wasn't a tiny cry. He actually was crying, trying to tell me about his older brother, my dad. Dinner, breakfast was served, and every question I asked, he just would start crying. So I thought, I thought this is uncomfortable at IHOP in Pasadena. So I said, Uncle, let's take it to go. So we got it to go. We put our breakfasts in a container, and we took it back to his house. And then we spent about two hours, and through the entire interview, he cried, reminiscing about his brother. And I learned stuff about my family. I learned some secrets and some myths about my family, which I'll get to in a minute. All right? It was an incredible time. I learned so much about my father, but it was secondhand. But at least it's better than nothing. It was my uncle's perception of my dad. So I got my uncle's perception, my mom's perception, his sister's perception. I got a couple of his friends' perception of my father. And I painted a picture of dad growing up as a young man. Here's some helpful hints. Don't initially share feelings. Just gather info. All right? Be like an investigative reporter. You don't contribute a lot. You just ask questions. Don't get off on a rabbit trail or a rabbit hole by asking questions. Ask for memories. Ask. I think dad will tell you memories when you get to a certain point. Keep a log or a journal. Write things down because you'll forget otherwise. Remember that they will share their perception of reality. You're seeking the truth, and the truth is somewhere in there, but it may not be the truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? Only the Bible has the truth. Everything else sometimes is the perception of that person's reality. So in other words, take it with a grain of salt, but it is a significant contribution. 
Know this, acquiring more information may open up other questions or other wounds or a sense of loss. That's sort of the risk of it all. You may hear something and all of a sudden it may open up other issues, but that's not a bad thing. That will become a good thing. Try to understand or gain insight from the knowledge acquired. Try to understand your father, not just know things about your dad. 2 Timothy 3, 7 says, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Sometimes we learn stuff, but we never understand what it's about. So wisdom is the application of knowledge. You can get all this knowledge, but you've got to be wise with it, which is the application of the knowledge that you gain, especially knowledge of the truth. So take the information you gather and try to understand your father in light of the information. Understand. Parents, that's what you need to do with your children as you raise them. You try to understand each child so you can help them in the way they should go. Your father is more than just your current perception of him. You need to embrace that. Your dad, as you sit here this morning, is more than your perception of what he is right now. He's more than that. And sometimes he is very, very, very complex. Fourth step, ascertain family secrets and family myths. Ascertain family secrets and family myths. Now, John 8.32 says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Family myths and family secrets sometimes hide the truth. In fact, the truth may be inside of it somewhere. Family myths and family secrets. Every family has myths, and every family has secrets. Uncovering family secrets and family myths will begin to set you free from them. So you may need freedom from the myth or the secret. Let me give you two definitions. Let me my definitions of myth and secret. Myths are things we talk about that never happen. That's a myth in the context of what it's sharing this morning. Secrets are the things that happen that we never talk about. And that's the difference between the two. Myths are things we talk about that never really happen. And secrets are the things that happen that we never talk about. The challenge of a family myth or a family secret is that we believe them as fervently as everybody else in the family. And to the family and to us, it is truth. Let me talk about Peter and the myth. You ever, ever heard the, uh, the fairy tale of Peter and the wolf? <clears throat> this is Peter and the myth, talking about the disciple Peter. What did Peter always say? One of the things he always said to Jesus when he talks about, whenever Jesus talked about his impending death and he did that with his disciples, what was Peter's response? They may leave you, I never will. Kept saying that. They may abandon you, I will not. He, and he really, really believed it. That he would never, never betray Jesus and abandon him, no matter what. He was willing to die for Jesus in his mind. But when the opportunity came to die for Jesus, what did he do? He denied him three times. Did he not? So that which he said never really happened, at least while Jesus was alive. It happened after the resurrection, but not prior to. So it was a myth. It was Peter and his myth. What was the myth? 
I'll die for you. Why was it a myth? Never really happened, at least while Jesus was alive. Discovery of myths usually require an outside input because it's hard to identify family myths if you're in the family. So you gather information from family and friends about the family. There's the black sheep source. The black sheep source, the one who did not conform to family values or family dysfunctions. And sometimes they're termed the black sheep. The lost child source. That's the quiet one who seldom got involved but was a keen observer of family dynamics. That's your brother or sister that hardly said boo. Didn't say anything, but observed the family all the time. The youngest child source. Sometimes the youngest child has a perspective that the rest of the family does not. So that was our youngest, Bethany, our youngest. She was born into a family of four. Tiffany, the oldest, was born into a family of three. So Bethany really had the best perspective of the family of five, known as the Ishidas. In our family, Bethany had the best perspective. And I think she had the most accurate view of our family dynamics. So if I were to go to anybody to find out about our family, I would go to Bethany. Here's some examples of family myths. One is, man, we are really close. I hear that, I've heard that a lot over my ministry especially from moms. We are really, really, really close. How well do you really know your family? Really? Sometimes in a smaller church, they'll say, well, we're small, but man, we are really close. How much do you really know about one another? That may be a myth. I heard one mother say, my daughter and I, um, we, uh, we share everything. I'm talking about actually probably even secrets. But, th- but that was really a myth. How do I know it was a myth? And I'm, this woman is sincere. She loves Jesus. She's highly spiritual. But how do I know that was a myth? Because her daughter came to me a couple times sharing things that she didn't want her mother to know. So I knew it was a myth. And it's a dangerous myth because you think you know everything about your child and you really don't. And they're, they're still very, very close. But I know she still doesn't tell everything to her mom. So that's, that's a myth in her mom's mind. Or maybe, especially in Japanese-American families, but sometimes in Asian-American families, dad is the head of the household. When really, in our family, it was matriarchal. But she always pointed to dad as the head of the family. In Chinese families, it's often the mother who, who holds reign in the family, not the dad. You can determine in your own family, is it matriarchal or is it patriarchal? But my mom always said, dad's the head of the family. And then when I got older, I go, no, he's not. No, he's not. Mom is in charge of our family, not dad. That's a myth. Dad, that was, dad didn't know what was going on in the family. Right. I don't resent my mom for that. She had to run the family. But like, I admire her. That's what they do in, like, in Japan. Emperor is in charge. No, he's not. The prime minister is really in charge. Whole societies have myths. There's some thoughts about secrets. Joseph's brothers had a secret, didn't they? What was their secret? They sold their brother, Joseph, into slavery. They wanted to kill him, but they sold him into slavery. That was their secret. And secrets complicate your lives. If you hold a secret right now, I guarantee you it's complicating your life. 
especially if it's a secret that you want to withhold from the rest of the family. Now, I'm not saying go home and disclose that secret because you've got to be wise how you deal with the secrets you have. But know that it'll, it complicates life. Here's some th- thoughts about secrets. One, it grows stronger over time. Secrets get stronger the longer you keep it. There's two categories of secrets. Those kept from the family and those kept from outsiders by the family. So you have internal and external secrets. Indicators of family secrets. Taboo subject areas. Things you don't want to talk about. There are some areas my mom and dad did not want to talk about in the presence of our kids. Because I knew there was an Ishida clan issue. I found out from my uncle when I interviewed him what that issue was. At least one of the issues. My mom and dad would have never disclosed that. Inexplicable behavior. Sometimes inexplicable behavior in a family reveals the fact that maybe the family has a secret. Let me show you that a secret. When I was growing up, this was a secret that families kept. Here's a film clip of that secret. It's so good to see you, Paul. Have you lost weight? I can almost put my wings around you. Ah, uh, well, maybe a little. Oh, poor you. You must feel weak. Let me get you some soup. Ah, uh, no, that's okay, Dad. I'm not hungry. Not hungry? <laughs> Paul, are you all right? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm fine. I just... Earlier today, I was fighting these bandits. Uh-huh. Nothing too dangerous. I mean, they were just, you know... Yeah? And then the strangest thing happened. Uh, I had this crazy vision. I think I saw my mom and me... As a baby? Uh, uh, Mom? A baby? Um, Dad. What are you talking about? How do I say this? Where did I come from? Well, you see, uh, son, uh, baby geese come from a, a little egg. Uh, don't ask me where the egg comes from. Dad, that's not what I meant. I know it's not. Uh, I think it's time I told you something. I should have told you a long time ago. Okay. You might have been kind of... Uh, uh, adopted. I knew it. You knew? Well, who told you? No one. I mean, come on, Dad. But if you knew, why didn't you ever say anything? Why didn't you say anything? My mic, because I thought maybe that was giving me feedback. <clears throat> when I was a kid, this was a secret parents held from their adopted child. So I knew one girl, and I had no clue she was adopted. Then when she got to be a little bit older, she had a health issue. And she needed, uh, she needed family history, her, you know, hereditary information, which she couldn't get from her parents because they weren't her biological parents. And that's when she found out she was adopted up to that point. And I was like probably junior high or high school. It was a secret. And that was the modus operandi back when I was growing up. You did not tell anybody that the child was adopted. Only the family knew. And uh, today there's open adoptions. I think it's much healthier. It's much better for the child who's adopted and the family who's raising them. And the parents who adopt, they are their parents. One of the things we had at Evergreen that really blessed me is we had dozens of adopted kids, some out of China. And uh, 
they were just, we have three in our family that are adopted. And they're as much our grandchildren as the other, uh, the other eight. No, the other nine. How many do we have? Yeah. <laughs> we have 13. So 10 are naturally born to our family. Three are adopted. Right? But they're, they're just part of the family. They are our forever family, to be sure. I just showed that for fun. Okay, I mean, I kept thinking throughout the movie, how does he not know he's adopted? He's a panda for crying out loud. All right, I never, never. Okay, but it answered in this particular scene. Fifthly, articulate family secrets and family myths. Articulate them. Now, <clears throat> Ephesians 4.15 says, and this is the governing factor, speaking the truth in love. Whenever you speak and start to articulate your family secret or your family myth or anything regarding this journey, make sure you speak it, speak the truth in love or what you perceive to be the truth in love. Which means what? Check your motives. What's your motive for sharing? Proverbs 21.2 says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. What's weighing the heart about? Motives. Is your motive pure and good? is to follow the fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, chart your presentation. Proverbs 21.5a says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. Think about what you're going to say. Think about the timing of what you're going to say. C, communicate affirmation. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. The word build up there means to edify or come alongside to strengthen. That's what the original language means. So whenever you want to when you talk to your dad, when you talk to your mind, talk to anybody, it should be words of affirmation. Because they build up. They don't tear down. Chance, of re- chance rejection. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You are going to share things perhaps with your dad that may not be received well at the front end. And there's a chance he will reject what you say first time around. I had a a member in our church who heard a message about the father journey. That Sunday, he drove up to Morro Bay area, the Morro Bay area. That Sunday, right after the message, to talk to his dad, to ask for forgiveness from his father and to forgive his father. And uh, I told him, you want me to go with him? He told me what he was going to do. You want me to go with you? He said, no, I got to do this by myself. So he went up there and his father totally rejected it. I, he came back. I said, what happened? He told me, I said, don't quit. No, because he was very affirming, he said. He was very positive. He kept doing that periodically for years. Now, his dad moved up there to get away from him and his grandkids. That was his reason. I knew the man. He was not a nice man. Right? And I visited him a couple times, tried to share Christ with him. Well, later on in life, the father talked to the son and said, you know, and he, can, he asked for forgiveness. He came to know Jesus and came down and lived in the Southern Cal until the day that he died. Took years, though. Took over a decade for that to happen. Here's a principle. Truth plus tact plus timing equals transformation. You need the truth. You need to be tactful with the truth or wise, and you need the right timing. And then transformation can occur. Remember the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, be loving, joyful, peaceful, patience, kind, faithful, gentle, and exhibit 
extreme self-control, all fruit of God's Holy Spirit. Then speak first to a third party, Proverbs 1, 5, Proverbs, well, the Proverbs that are listed in Romans, all tell us it's wise to seek counsel before making a big step and whenever possible. Counselor, spiritual leader, and friend, in that order. I think it's better to go to a counselor, spiritual leader, before you go to a friend. Because oftentimes friends tell you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. Don't go directly to dad in a confrontational, combative matter. Don't run directly to your father. Seek counsel. Be patient. Understand things first. And then make an effort toward your dad. And the initial effort might be just learning his history. Just having conversations with your dad that you never die. I shared with one woman, and she, she said, I'm going to take my dad out to breakfast. She did. She lives up north. I couldn't follow up on her that well. I saw it like two years later. She said, you know, I took my dad to breakfast. He didn't know what to do about that breakfast. And the first time around, it was really awkward. So then we started having regular breakfast together. And eventually, she said, my, our relationship was restored. One little step. Sixthly, acknowledge your history. Psalm 51 is David acknowledging his past. He identified what was missing. We need to identify what's missing in our relationship with our father. Acknowledge that history. Write a story. Believe what the, believe. Write a story about what we believe should happen or write a story about maybe what you could happen, what could happen. And just keep that story to yourself. Write a description of an ideal prototype father and then describe your loss based upon your, your dad. Describe a male who fits the prototype you envision. Then describe your wound, loss, or yearning. So acknowledge your history. This is my relationship with my dad. It is what it is. Now I need to move on from there. And maybe having healing and reconciliation in the midst of it. Seventhly, address your losses. Ecclesiastes 3, 4, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn, and a time to dance. If you have a loss, you may need to spend some time to mourn over that loss, the realization of the loss, or the wound, or the yearning. Here are the stages of grief. This is through observation by a particular person, and it's been validated over and over and over again. First of all, denial. Believing the myth and keeping the secret. That's denial in the context of what I'm sharing this morning. Anger, emotional response to uncovering the myth and the secret. Bargaining with God, desire to keep the myth and the secret. Depression, anger turned inward. And then acceptance, seeing a clearer picture of who you are in light of the myth and secret. Basically, your relationship with your father. Take time to reflect. Journaling, keep a written record of your journey. Letter writing, writing a letter to dad. That you don't intend to send. Here's just something to always remember. When something like this comes up and you want to communicate with somebody, something that's really difficult, it'd be wiser not to use a letter, email, text messaging, anything you use today in in, in that particular arena. Because it's not the same as talking face-to-face. It's not the same. Now, if your dad dad is deceased, then you have to resort to something else. But if your dad's alive, uh, the, best way to, the best way to confront, the best way to deal with it 
is face to face if you possibly can. Eighthly, wait. Gone through it this far? Then wait. Psalm 46.10 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. Another version says, Be still and know that I am God. And what precedes the, the first ten, the tenth verse? Calamity. Mainly uh, uh, physical calamity. Three thoughts on waiting. The earlier the loss or injury, the longer the recovery time. The longer it goes on, the longer the recovery. Secondly, we need to be able to proceed in the fruit of the Spirit, which I already talked about. Ask the Lord to bless you with the fruit of His Spirit. Thirdly, we need to proceed from a position of strength, not anger or desperation. If you're really upset, if you feel desperate, if you feel frustrated, wait. Wait till the Lord brings you into a different position. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. When you recognize your weaknesses, that's when you can have a position of strength. You operate from your weakness rather than trying to be strong and move forward. Ephesians 4.26 and 27, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. We should never really confront anybody when we are angry. Ninthly, allow God to heal your wound, your loss, or your yearning. Here's some scriptures, great scriptures about this. Hosea 14.8, in you the fatherless find compassion, meaning God. And sometimes we can feel like we're fatherless, even though our father is alive. Psalm 27.10, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. See, we have a heavenly father. We have an incredible resource namely the Heavenly Father. Psalm 103, 13 and 14, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 2 Corinthians 6, 18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Here's a proverb in Israel, Ezekiel 18, 2, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. This is where the sins, or even what the Father does has repercussions on the children. Here's a response to that verse in Ezekiel from God. As I live, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Doesn't have to be that way. You know, uh, when I was in ninth grade, we had a system back then where it was 7th, 8th, ninth was junior high, 10th, 11th, 12th was senior high. So ninth grader, you're like a senior in that particular or that particular uh, time of your life. So in ninth grade, I received the O Outstanding Student O Outstanding Students Award OSA, and the way they presented the award was we were in an assembly, and then they'd let your parents know in secret to come to the assembly, and they sat way in the back, right? So and then nobody wanted to look around to see if your parents there, right? So your picture went up on the screen. They introduced you as one of the recipients. I think there were like five or six recipients. And then at the end, they introduce your parents and the parents will stand. Everybody else applause. My dad and mom stood up and I was embarrassed at the way my dad dressed. All the other dads had like a three-piece suit on, a nice suit. My dad had this old sport coat and back then, the thighs, the ties were really thin. 
that was stylish, a thin tie. He had a thick plaid tie and a sport coat that he probably got when he was a young man and didn't really fit him super well. Kind of a tweed coat. I was so embarrassed. I was ashamed of my father. So I went through a healing time during this journey, and I asked the Lord to give me memories of things that I needed to clear the deck of. And that was a memory that really came hard and strong. It's something I'd forgotten about. And in a time of prayer and reflection, asking God, what is it about my dad I need to deal with? And I was also in counseling at the time. Um, This memory came up. And I realized, man, if my dad were alive, I would need to ask him for forgiveness. Feeling that way. Because you know why he wore that coat? Had to wear that coat? Because after the war, after being in the camps, he was actually in the military, serving the U.S. Army. And when they got back, he already missed college age. So he had to go straight to work to support the family. And everything he earned was poured into us so I could dress better. Because I dressed better, he dressed that way. It was because of his sacrificial act of love toward his family that he had to dress that way. And I was ashamed of him for it. That all came back during my father's journey. And I thought, you know, I got to go before the Lord and ask the Lord to forgive me for feeling that way toward my dad because I couldn't do that with my dad. And it really helped me resolve some stuff in my life. That was a yearning that I had. A portion of my yearning for my dad kind of got healed as I began to understand why he did the things that he had to do. My father died in 1978. I was called to Evergreen in 77. He came to church for almost a year. Then he died in 1978 at the age of 61. Hamlet wrote, or Hamlet said, Shakespeare wrote, Hamlet said, I would give some violets, but they withered all when my father died. I didn't understand Hamlet when I read it in high school. I understood that when I read it. I couldn't cry at my father's death at his funeral. I didn't shed a single single tear for my dad. So I continued the journey. I'm going to go a little long today. Long for me, okay? I'll tell you the story of why I didn't cry. From the time I was in junior high, I did not cry. Except when my dog died. What happened was, I was... My uncle, the the one I interviewed, when my grandfather passed away, he made jokes about my grandfather dying, right? I think that was his way of dealing with it. We went to my grandfather's wake. And at the wake, my uncle was sitting in the front row, and he was crying like a baby. I mean, he was just bawling. And the whole family was crying. And my dad's casket was there opened. I'm sorry, my grandpa's casket was there open. My dad and I were the only two not crying. And I had been taught all this time, little boys don't cry, men don't cry. When I get hurt, I wouldn't cry because, you know, you don't cry. Men don't cry. That was ingrained in me. So when I saw my uncle cry, I was disgusted. I was about a junior higher. My dad and I thought my dad and I were the only two men in our family. So then my dad had to go to the bathroom. He went to the bathroom. It took a long time. So I went to look for him. He was coming out of the bathroom, and I saw him wiping away a tear. And I was appalled that my dad cried. And you know what my thought was? My thought was not, I must be okay to cry. My thought was, I'm the only man in the family. As a junior hire, 
And I swore that day I would never cry. That's an oath. That's actually an oath. And God says not to make an oath. I came to understand it when you look back when I was a junior higher. And so for all that time, no matter what happened, my grandma died, things happened. I never, ever shed a tear. When my dad died, I was age 30. Didn't cry. I, I did his funeral. Didn't cry. I oversaw the burial. I didn't cry. I did not cry. At that juncture, I knew something is wrong with me. Because I couldn't cry for my father. Tenthly, acquit your dad. Acquit him. Ephesians 4, 32 says, Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Forgive me. Oh, by the way, men don't cry is a lie. And only the truth can set you free from that lie. I didn't know the truth. I believed the lie. And the lie was truth to me. That's how powerful lies are when we embrace them as truth. And the only way to discover lies is through the study of God's word. Because there you find truth that will set you free. Acquit your dad. Forgiveness is a biblical mandate. Uh, Matthew 8 talks about it. Seven thoughts on forgiveness. I think there's seven. Yeah, seven thoughts on forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. It doesn't need the cooperation of the one being forgiven. Some people disagree with this, but this is my position. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. Because Jesus on the cross said, what, Father, forgive them for they know what they do? Did they ask for forgiveness? No, right? Forgiveness is unilateral. Reconciliation is bilateral. It takes the cooperation of the other person. And that's what you're striving after. But you take the step of forgiveness, even though there may not be reconciliation at that moment, or ever, for that matter. Secondly, forgiveness doesn't mean you condone simple behavior. Thirdly, forgiveness doesn't pretend that nothing happened. Forgiveness requires remembering, not forgetting. Remembering. You know, you know they say forgiving is forgetting? You never forget a sin committed against you. You really don't. So I don't think it's wise to ask God, help me just forget this. What you want is you want you want to forgive so that when you remember, it doesn't really remember, matter that you remember because you're living as though that sin has been forgiven. You will always remember sins against you, but the impact it has on you will change the moment you forgive the one who has trespassed against you. Because the only one that suffers when you, keep, when you keep the grudge is you, the one who keeps the grudge. Because the one who sinned against you probably doesn't even think about it. Probably doesn't impact them at all. Forgiveness, okay. forgiveness takes time. Forgiveness is personal. And forgiveness is permanent. I have some thoughts about forgiveness. Eleventh step. Attempt to caringly confront Proverbs 5, which I mentioned before. If therefore you are pre presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. We know how important worship is to the Lord, right? We know that. And what's God saying? Suspend your worship to go make up with a brother or a sister. Our offerings cannot be given wholeheartedly when our hearts are wounded or when we're in bondage. So whenever possible, clear your heart. 
Now, it may not be possible automatically, but that's the process and steps you're taking. The purpose of confronting is to bring peace and healing into the relationship. The purpose is not to blame, not to punish, and not to get revenge. Parent bashing is always counterproductive. If that's what's on your heart, don't go to confront. Instead, seek to establish a relationship. Caring confrontation does not occur in isolation. Caring confrontation occurs within the context of a relationship, both then and then beyond that point in time. Twelve, next to last, adjust to new roles. Adjust to new roles. Second Corinthians 5.17, we're all familiar with this verse, probably. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. New things can be new roles, new role relationships. If you're a husband, you don't know Jesus and you act a certain way. When you come to know Jesus, your behavior should change, which means what? Your role as a husband begins to morph into what God wants it to be. That's what it means to be a new creature. You start to develop new roles. Something new is in existence. New roles will be established after you make peace with your dad, even if he doesn't fully cooperate. Peace affords us the opportunity to grow up. We don't need to interact with our fathers the same way as before. We begin to act with with our dads more like a peer than a child. Now, here's where it's going to be really important. Right now, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, and maybe it, it will impact you. Where it's going to really impact you is if your parents live through to an old age. Right? So I'm, you know how old I am? I'm 76, right? So I still have my wits about me. But, you know, who knows where I'm going to be if I live another 10 years. We made a decision to move to Atherton Baptist Homes. So our care is now insured all the way to death from assisted living to skilled nursing to death. I did that because I've seen what happens to families who try to take care of their elderly parents when they don't necessarily have to, or even when they have to. So I took, we took it out of the hands of our kids. I think our kids could have handled it, but I decided to take it out of the hands of our kids so they do not have to worry about taking care of us. Did I tell you? I told my grandkids, if mom, grandma goes into skilled nursing, visit her as often as you can. Just visit, even if it's for 10 minutes, just visit her. If I go into skilled nursing, make sure I have a big screen TV, uh, cable for sports programs, and, and, uh, and um, what do you call those? Headphones, so I don't bother my, my roommate. Because they give you roommates. <laughs> and um, I didn't even know where I was going. Oh, yes, because role reversals will happen when your parents are 70, 75, 80, 85. You become the parent, they become the child. And if you still have an issue with your parents, mom or dad, it is going to exasperate their care. Anything that was minor will become major. Anything that is major will become an incredible deterrent to your care for your parents. You will resent them for it. So it really behooves you and it behooves your parents to take a journey to resolve as many issues as you can. I'll tell you another story. Today I'm going to tell you a bunch of stories. I went and talked to a 
I, I, I was at, at Atherton, a lady that I knew from way back when, went to Christian camps with her once a year. She was there, pastor's wife. She was there, so we sat with her. And she looked at me and said, oh, you're that young pastor that plays basketball really well. I said, no, no, you watch me play softball, not basketball. So about six times during the meal, she said, oh, yeah, you're the, you're the young man, the young pastor that plays basketball really well. And I saw, at the, after the second time, I said, oh, yeah, that's me. Okay, <laughs> no point in telling her it was softball, not basketball. So we walked her back to her room, and as we walked her back to her room, there were these boards that had pictures of all the residents at Atherton. So it happened to be that the picture showed my wife and I. And she looked at the pictures. I know that young man. He is the, he's the pastor that plays basketball really well. And I just kind of smiled. It didn't bother me a lick. You know why? I had no issues with her. None. If that were my mother and I had issues with her and she kept saying that over and over, guaranteed I would be irritated. And I hear this story over and over by people taking care of their elderly parents. And one of the things elderly people do, they repeat themselves because they don't remember what they just said. And they're experiencing it all over again. Right? I took care of my aunt. Ten years she had Alzheimer's. Right? So I was the primary caregiver for my aunt. I know exactly what it was like. If you don't clear up your father and mother issues, and they happen to live to a ripe old age and you are taking care of them, if you don't take care of these issues now, it will haunt you later on because it will be really difficult to take care of them because anything minor that exasperates you will become major because not because it's a major thing, but because you have an issue with your parent. So you're going to need to adjust the new rule. 40-70 rule. When you're 40 and your parents are 70, you need to talk about end-of-life issues. So after this is all said and done, you can invite me back and I'll talk about caring for it. Because most of you are just at the cusp of that, right? In your 30s maybe. And your parents may be in their 50s. Another 10 years, you're going to be there. And the parents are the ones that have a hard time discussing it, not the kids. Although sometimes kids do too if they have issues with their parents. Finally, 13. Step 13. Appreciate God's redemption. Romans 8.28 says, For we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. When my father died in 1978, I appreciated and never cried. About a decade later, as I went through my father's journey, I was seeing a counselor, I was doing all the things that I've, I've been talking about, and uh, I actually followed all this. So one night, I had a dream. And this is at the end of my father's journey. I had a dream. And the dream was, I was at my father's funeral, but I wasn't officiating. I was sitting there as a son. And then I remember in the middle of the funeral, I just started crying hard. Right? I was wailing for the, at the loss of my father. So then I wake up from my dream, and I discovered I was crying. You ever have a dream like that where you're dreaming something and actually taking place? Well, in the dream, I was crying. And when I woke up, I was crying. And it was really the first hard cry I had had since junior high. And from that point on, I, I cry. I tell you, the other cry I had was when I saw the movie related to my father. But in terms of, in terms of, of actual happening in my life, 
It was the first hard cry I think I ever had since junior high. A dog and watching Field of Dreams, only other two times I recall crying. That opened up, there's a ministry of tears the Bible talks about. That was a ministry of God to me through tears. I'm a firm believer in that now. Redemption is God giving meaning to every experience in our lives by the way in which he uses those experiences for good. That's redemption. God does not cause bad things to happen to us. Bad things happen because we are in a fallen state. Redeeming father wounds. God can use, even use father wounds and give them new meaning. That's redemption. God could use them to comfort others. I mean, my father loss and yearning resulted in me pursuing it, and now I can teach it, which maybe can bring healing to other people. That's redemption. I have a favorite movie. Okay, everybody think for a moment. What's your favorite movie? Got it? My favorite movie is a movie called The Kid. How many of you here this morning have ever seen the movie The Kid? That's what I thought. Two, maybe? It's a Disney flick. I was sick one day. Had to go get some medicine, went to Target. You know, Target has that back then, but DVDs, they had a, a, a shelf that had DVDs for $4 or $2. This one might have been like $2. And there it was, The Kid, a Disney movie. I was sick. I thought, I want to watch a DVD. Cheaper than renting from Blockbusters. Remember Blockbusters one? No, you don't remember. Cheaper than Blockbusters. So I bought it and I saw, I loved it. It is now, it has been since that time, my favorite all-time movie, The Kid. It's about a guy named Russ who thinks of himself as a loser. His, his, his job is, is a, um, uh, what's his job? He's a, um, he gets hired by people to, to enhance their prestige and their, and their reputation. That's his job. When he's about ready to turn 40, his eight-year-old self visits him. All right, this is the fantasy. This is the Disney part of it. A little kid, that's Russ, chubby little kid as an eight-year-old, visits him. And so the rest of the movie is this interface between the 40-year-old uh, Russell, Russ and the 8-year-old Russell. Right? Got the, got the, they both are losers, think they're losers. Like little Russell says, how come you don't have a dog? I said, yeah. I said, Only losers don't have a dog. Right? So Russ, big Russ acknowledges that he's a loser. So he's figuring, why is little Russ, Russell visiting me? And so that's what the story's about. He's trying to figure out what he's doing. so... Big Russ remembers when he was eight years old, he had a fight in the playground, and he lost the fight. And this might, that, might have, that might have sent him on a course of being a loser for the rest of his life. He's successful, actually, a businessman, but he's a loser in life. Not married yet, not, just doesn't have a dog. And so he trains him up to fight so that it'll be a different outcome when he has the fight in the playground because he'll beat up the other kid. But that really wasn't the issue. And so you're going to see a scene of his relationship with his father. That's the opening thing, opening, one of the opening scenes in the movie. And then you're going to see what transpires after the fight where he wins. And you're going to see his mother enter into the picture. So Big Russ, Big Russ sees his mom. And then you're going to see a confrontation between him and his father when he was eight years old. And, the big, and Big Russ is walking, watching it. And then you'll see what the result is when he realizes something 
when he, when he watches the confrontation. Okay, so there's going to be a set of scenes here. He put her name on the ticket so now she and her husband are going to Hawaii. Okay, uh, it's my favorite movie. You can probably tell why, huh? All about a father journey. He had a horrible relationship with his dad based on a lie, a misperception. He had this twitch. Every time he came to the presence, uh, presence of his dad, he had this twitch. And remember when he, the dad rubbed the eight-year-old's eyes? That's when the twitch started. And he thought that he was one of the reasons why his mother died, because that's what his dad said in an unthinking moment. And so his journey actually was a make-believe journey that Disney created. You know, eight-year-old Russ comes, Russell comes to visit Big Russ. But that was a father journey, which led to restoration and led to actually a whole different new role for him, even with his secretary. He became a generous boss. That's why I like this movie. But it doesn't have to be a Disney production. This can happen in your life one degree to, to another by taking a father journey. Try to follow the steps that I've shared with you, and I'll give a, a, an outline copy to Jonathan. Take this, you can even purchase the book. Right? But think about taking a journey. At some juncture in your life, no matter if your father, you have a father wound, a father lost, or a father yearning that may be great or maybe very minor because you had a really good dad, it will still benefit you. And remember, we have an incredible resource. We have, no matter what our earthly dad was like, we have an incredible heavenly father who loves you and wants the best for you and will accompany you every step of the way if you decide to take a father journey. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and kindness in our lives and how incredibly important this journey is that you want hearts of children restored to their fathers and the hearts of fathers restored to their children. Lord, I pray for all who are gathered here this morning that if it's your desire for this to transpire in their lives, you will make it so. Guide them, cover them, love them through it all. Thank you for this. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.